This is Phil Barden, author of Decoded, the science behind why we buy. And you are listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. Welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast, helping you keep up with the smartest thinking in the quickly changing field of modern marketing. And now, here's your host, Douglas Burdett. Hello, thanks for joining me on the Marketing Book Podcast, where each week I publish an interview with the author of a new marketing or sales book, and which has been named as one of the top marketing podcasts by Forbes and LinkedIn, amongst others. Don't worry about taking notes. You can find links to everything linkable on this episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com. And since I get to read every book featured on the show, if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or any other resource I know of for whatever challenge you're facing, send me a LinkedIn connection invite with a message that you're a listener, and I will do my best to get you pointed in the right direction. My name again is Douglas Burdett. This episode is sponsored by by Marketing Architects, creators of the all-inclusive TV advertising concept that's so revolutionary, they wrote a book about it. I'll tell you more and how to get a free copy of the book in a few minutes. Now, let's get on with the show. Today, we welcome Phil Barden to talk about the second edition of his book, Decoded, The Science Behind Why We Buy, published by Wiley. Phil Barden has over 25 years client-side brand management experience with Unilever, Diageo, and T-Mobile. And while responsible for T-Mobile's brand positioning and development around Europe, he became a client of Decode Marketing Consultancy and first encountered Decision Science. Decode's work led to the Liverpool Street Flash Mob dance ad, which increased T-Mobile sales by 49%, and further work cut customer churn in half. This epiphany led Phil to set up Decode Marketing in the United Kingdom. Respect, West Side. Phil lectures on decision science for the IPA and APG diplomas, various MBA and master's programs, and is a regular speaker at client and industry events. And, interesting fact, once at a corporate lunch, Princess Diana gave him her dessert. Phil, congratulations on the second edition of Decoded, and welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast. Thanks, Doug. It's great to be here. So, you, you got to explain. You, you were sitting next to Princess Diana at a lunch, and I guess you were very hungry, and you said, hey, are you going to eat that, or, or what, what happened? <laughs> Not quite. So, the, the brand that I was managing at the time uh, sponsored a charity event, and Princess Diana was the patron of that charity. And as the brand manager, I got to go to uh, an annual awards ceremony, which was a lunch. And I got to meet um, the lovely lady and actually sit next to her during the lunch. And um, when dessert was served, she, she'd been toying with her food and she leant over and said to me, would you like my dessert? Uh, and I said, well, yeah, sure, if you're not going to, to eat it. And she, she very quickly and surreptitiously lifted her plate and pushed the dessert onto mine. So, yeah, that's a, that's a claim to fame that uh, I ate Princess Diana's dessert. Wow, that's really a great story and, uh, you know, really, really interesting. And now, one of the things I want to ask, because there's a, there's a lot of Phil Barden rumors floating around, for that T-Mobile Liverpool Street Station flash mob dance ad. Is it true that you were one of the dancers? Uh, no, it was my doppelganger. Oh. Uh, yeah. 
Because I yeah. in the in the video which I'm going to include at uh, this episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com, there's a guy wearing a suit, and I th- I thought that was you. Yeah. You, well, if if you want to believe it's me, Doug, um, I don't want to disappoint you. Thank you, because I want to go. I, I'm, I'm pretty much I, I'm going with that, and uh, you know maybe it's one of those conspiracy theories, but uh, anyway, <laughs> you know. So the book uh, was endorsed by a number of notables, but it included one by Patrick Barwise, who is a emeritus professor at London Business School and co-author with Thomas Barda of one of my favorite books, The 12 Powers of a Marketing Leader, which was featured on the show uh, episode 110 back in 2017. And I should mention that when I see that the forward to a book is written by Rory Sutherland, (laughs) I take note. Uh, He is such an incredible person, a great writer, and uh, he's the author of Alchemy, which was featured on the Marketing Book Podcast, episode 263, back in 2020. And he also wrote the foreword to Sam Tatum's recent book, Evolutionary Ideas, which was featured uh, more recently on episode 397. And I want to read an excerpt from the foreword, where he writes, Marketing seldom attempts to be much of a science, but when it does, it certainly does not attempt to be an empirical science. Again, like economics, it takes an assumption on how people should be influenced in any course of action and then constructs a whole set of rules derived from that initial assumption. It also decides its actions on the basis of a spectacularly dangerous delusion that people know and can accurately describe the mental mechanisms underlying their decisions and actions. What Phil has done with this book is to fire a powerful and timely salvo in the battle against this backward against this backwards approach. So while this is ostensibly a book about marketing, it has implications for fields far beyond it. The book collates a large body of scientific evidence that shows that people do not make decisions in the way marketers or economists commonly and simplistically assume. So just as economics has often been blind to a wide range of human emotions and tendencies, such as regret, loss aversion, contagion, or the endowment effect, it seems that marketers have been similarly blind to a whole range of unconscious influences on human decision-making, such as context, goal dilution, path dependency, or framing. For this reason, the book and its wealth of case studies and citations is invaluable to marketers and to anyone working in an ad agency, in a digital agency, in market research, or in media. But it's also of importance to anyone who seeks to understand people, their perceptions and their motivations, politicians, policymakers, retailers, product designers, financial regulators, legislators, and businesses of any kind. So, Phil, most books don't have a second edition. <laughs> what led you to write the second edition? And, and for those who are already familiar with the first edition, how is this one different? Well, the first edition was published in 2013. And since then, quite a lot has happened. The, uh, the growth in decision science and behavioral science has been explosive, both um, from the vendor side. There are now many more agencies and suppliers getting into this area. Also on the, uh, the demand side cli- from clients uh, and on the educational side, there, there are now many, many more courses available to people wanting to study human behavior and uh, and and decision making so 
A lot's changed. There are many more studies that have been published in the intervening period. I mean, there are probably studies published in, in different scientific and academic uh, publications every every week, every month. And also, we've done a lot more as a business. So I wanted to bring the book up to date. Uh, there's roughly 20% new content, uh, which includes some case studies. So a case study on measuring distinctive brand assets, uh, another case study on really diving into the neuropsychology of brand purchase. Uh, and then finally, a case study on behavior during COVID, which of mm. course is, is unfortunately still with us. Uh, so a lot had changed and I just felt it was time to, to refresh the first edition. Mm. Well, let's go to the preface, which really got this knuckleheaded reader fired up. Where is marketing La La Land? <laughs> Marketing La La Land is uh, a lot of people are there apparently. Yeah, yeah. It's it's an unfortunate place um, that uh, CFOs and many CEOs um, believe exists that are in, inhabited by uh, marketeers who they pejoratively describe as belonging to the coloring in department. You know, they think that marketing is is all a bit fluffy and intangible, and or as I like to say, the arts and crafts party planners. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Who, who work and, in the make it pretty department? Yeah, totally. And it's it's about you know putting the putting the gloss on something and sprinkling a bit of fairy dust and then chucking it out in the market. But um, unfortunately, a lot of marketing has got a bad reputation uh, for for just. Uh, being at the end of the whole process. So the CFO can measure a lot of things like inputs and outputs of production and costs of everything. But it's very difficult to pin down the value of what marketing does. And so what CFOs tend to do is just look at it as a cost. Mm -hmm. And unless marketeers can justify that cost and really prove the value that they add and their whole raison d'etre, then they risk being isolated and uh, an, uh, an extradited to la-la land and that they just won't be taken seriously. I mean, what, what uh, CFOs and CEOs kind of know, but they really need marketing to reinforce, is the fact that brands are the lifeblood of any company. You know, brands are what bring in the revenue. And if you look at the value of brands, I mean, it, as intangible assets, as, as goodwill on a balance sheet, yes, they very often outweigh the actual tangible assets themselves. Mm -hmm. So what brands are, are a guarantee of, of a revenue stream, both now and in the future. And that's what I was hoping to begin to achieve and use this book as a way to help marketers exit La La Land and really make what uh, what might be seen pejoratively as something fluffy and intangible into something that you can systematically control and manage and, and work with and thereby prove its value to CFOs and CEOs. So, Phil, when I read in a book about this study by the Fournay's Marketing Group, it just warms the cockles of my heart because listeners to the Marketing Group podcast 
have probably heard me talk about this. And it was um, super relevant to the book that Barwise and Barter wrote, 12 Powers of a Marketing Leader. There, That was one of the books that have been on the show that talks about, in somewhat clinical <laughs> research-based terms, perceptions of marketers. So if you don't mind, I just want to quote from this one paragraph, because we're going to come back to this uh, at the end of this conversation, but it's really, really important. And I've often given presentations and I've talked about, you know, the, one of the most important things marketers need to understand is that they have an image problem, it, whether fair or not. So let me just read from this. You write, this is symptomatic of a more general point and one that should concern all marketers. A study by the Fornays Marketing Group among 1,200 CEOs across North America, Europe, and Asia Pacific reported that 80% of chief executives believe marketers are disconnected from business results and focus on the wrong areas. More specifically, 78% of respondents said that marketers too often lose sight of what their real job is, namely to increase demand for goods and services in a quantifiable way. The research concluded that marketers will have to transform themselves into true return on investment driven business people if they are to earn the trust of CEOs and if they want to have a bigger impact in the boardroom. Otherwise, they will forever remain in what 65% of CEOs call Marketing La La Land. Perhaps this explains why barely five years ago, only 34 of the Fortune 1000 companies in the United States had a marketing director on their boards, and the number is only slightly higher in the UK. And again, back to Barwise's book, the solution is get in the revenue camp. Get in the revenue camp. So it's uh, really important. Let's go back in time just a bit, though, because there's one other question I want to ask you about from the preface. There was sort of this... uh, I guess either the epiphany, but I want to quote from the the beginning of this one paragraph. You write, so why have I written this book? <laughs> Talk a bit more about this. This uh, what, what led to this, this revelation that you had. Yeah, it, and it truly was a revelation. I mean, it, it was sort of quasi-religious in, in terms of um, the experience that I had. So I, I had grown up um, mostly in Unilever, uh, learning a particular mental model of how the world worked, how brands worked, how advertising worked. And I felt probably quite arrogantly that I I knew this stuff. You know, I was a Unilever marketeer. And um yeah, that was a good a good education to to have. Um but there were still always many unanswered questions. You know, people would say one thing in research and then do something completely different or uh, testing an ad that um, did very well in research and then failed in the marketplace or vice versa. And there was never really a perfect answer to any of these unanswered questions. There were lots of hypotheses, both from client side as well as agency side, but Still, there was a bit of a a gap. And when I started working as a client of Decode Marketings, Decode was set up in in Germany. It was founded by a neuroscientist and a psychologist. And uh, I was introduced to them and, and tried them out on a few things. And they spoke a completely different language. To and we're not talking used. German here. No, 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 no. <laughs> we're not talking literally uh, German. No, a different. They had a different lens through which to to view the world. And so, for example, I gave them uh, a print ad, uh, 
that had been created based uh, to sell a T-Mobile proposition, which was around a, a flexible tariff, a flexible tariff where you could kind of interchange minutes and texts. It was in the days when you had fixed bundles of minutes and texts. And this ad used um, things that were hitherto rigid and very structured and made them flexible. So it showed a guy leaning on a brick wall and the wall was bending as he leant on it. So it flexed underneath him. And we thought, this is quite a clever metaphor to show that things that were rigid, i.e. other other mobile companies' tariffs, with us it's different, with us it's flexible. And this, uh, this ad wasn't working. We weren't getting very good response to it at all. And I showed it to the deco guys and I said, look, here, I'm just going to try you out. Tell me why. What's this ad saying to you? And I showed them the brief. And they said, well, one of the problems with this ad is you have got the guy standing behind a physical barrier and over the other side of the barrier, in what looks like a, a sunny park, there's a bunch of other people and they look like they're having fun. And the message you are sending is that with this tariff, you will be a sad, lonely individual, physically divorced from the group. Which may appeal to some people. Well, of course, but it wasn't what we intended. Yes. So whilst I'd been looking at the explicit part of the brief, like, you know, this wall is flexible. Oh, that's right. cool. That's a good way. That to was the news. A, yeah. Yeah. That's a good way to convey a flexible uh, tariff here. But at an implicit level, the signals that were being sent by that visual were completely different and completely not what we had intended or, or indeed thought about. So I thought this is quite an interesting observation. And I tried tried them out similarly on, on other ads. And again, they just within minutes looked at it and looked at me and, and started to explain things. And, and this really intrigued me. And it ended up with me commissioning them to work on the relaunch of, of T-Mobile, um, which, as you mentioned uh, at the beginning, Doug, with the um, Liverpool Street flash mob dance ad, was incredibly successful and took us all by surprise in the company. And when I expressed the surprise to the guys from Decode, they were equally surprised with me and with my reaction. And they, they said, well, we don't understand why you're surprised because what we have done with that ad is deliberately encode motivators of behaviour. And you know, we did, we'd done some empirical research prior to that to identify what those motivators of behaviour were and written a brief based on that. And the agency's creative leap of genius was to turn that idea into this flash mob. And so Decode looked at me and said, well, so why are you surprised when it works? This is what you set out to do. This is what the ad does. And people have responded. Yeah, what, what's the issue? <laughs> and I, I honestly, I'd never seen a cause and effect like that before. And um, even, even to the extent that when that ad was aired in the UK on a Friday night, within 48 hours that weekend, footfall into the T-Mobile retail stores doubled. And the, and the sales department rang us up and said, why didn't you tell us you'd booked and scheduled all of this local store activation activity 
to which we responded, what are you talking about? <laughs> we just there ran an ad. <laughs> yeah, we, did, we just ran an ad, exactly. There's no other activity. What, why are you asking? And they said, because the traffic counters on the doors all around the country, uh, we're getting a reports back that, that footfall has doubled. And, that was and, and you'll take that complaint all day. Well, of course, yeah. <laughs> so, so the more I, I talk to these guys from Decode, and, and I would say to them, wow, this is amazing. How come you know this stuff? And they'd look at me blankly and say, but Phil, how come you don't know this stuff? <laughs> because, you know, we're using work from decades of different fields of uh, human understanding and, and behavior and how communications are processed or how attention works or whatever it might be. How come the commercial world doesn't know this? And for me, that was the huge moment. That was the real eye-opening moment when I thought, wow, you know, I'd, all, I'd thought of these guys up to now as just being academics and scientists kind of removed from the real world and I knew uh, how brands worked and how communications worked and what they'd proven to me very quickly and very cogently was you know what science and academia have been studying human behavior for decades there's there's a distinct possibility they might know more about it than the commercial world does yes and that, so that was the that was this whole sort of genesis of it and why my my mental models were were challenged uh, and and in some cases proven to be totally wrong, uh, which was a shock and, and not a not a happy experience. I can tell you, um, yeah. And I I've since learned that there's even a, a way to understand that. It's called the Semmelweis reflex, which is the tendency for us as humans to reject new information if it conflicts with or contradicts our existing beliefs or our existing mental models um, because there's safety and security in the status quo. Anything that challenges that is inherently risky and potentially dangerous. And that's why we tend to stick to what we know uh, and why it takes, why change management per se is so difficult in, in, in any, uh, any walk of life, particularly in business, because we default to the status quo. So when you have your status quo challenged so fundamentally, and I was lucky because I wasn't just talking to extremely smart and well-qualified guys. I had the real tangible experience of this brand relaunch and the real tangible commercial results that had come to help me get over this sort of, oh my God, this has rocked my world. Um, but I was able to come through it with that experience and, and embrace it and indeed be totally captivated and intrigued by what these guys knew. And, and the more I talked to them, um, the more intrigued I became. They gave me some, some books to read, uh, sort of popular psychology books. And, and eventually I, I said to them, look, this is, this is too important um, for me. It, it is fundamentally the essence of marketing and that is behavior change because ultimately what we're trying to do is to influence behavior in favor of our brands we want people to buy our brands buy more of our brands switch to our brands talk about our brands go on social media and spread the word or whatever it might be this is about human behavior and if you guys in science and academia know more than I do, then I want to leverage what you know. And that's that's the real job to be done is leveraging what fields of science knows 
about behavior and behavior change and using it to commercial advantage. So that was the preface. That's why I wrote the book, because I wanted to bring this to a wider audience of people like me, right? I haven't got a PhD in neuroscience and I'm never going to. But if I can understand enough about what these core principles and concepts are and I can translate that into layman's speak such that if I can understand it, frankly, anybody can, but also importantly, give very practical application of of the work. So I'm deliberately set out to answer the sort of the so what questions and the okay now what questions so that's why at the end of every chapter I have a little summary that says what does this mean for for us as marketeers Mm -hmm. because we we ultimately it's really you know it's fascinating to read about some of these studies but then what are you going to do differently and that that's the bit that I've really found to be valuable now in my in my practice with working with decode is how do we action this stuff? Yeah. Well, you know, that took a lot of humility, Phil, for, for you as a high-powered marketing executive to realize maybe you didn't have all the answers. And uh, I can only imagine that for at least as long as you continue working, you're going to run into decision science deniers within the uh, the marketing world. And when you talk about the response of your now colleagues about, what do you mean you, you don't understand this? It's like explaining water to a fish. <laughs> Like, yeah. what, what do you mean? It, this is what we this is what we always do. But it also, I thought, once again, ties back to Rory's comments in the preface about the sort of backwards approach that that marketers have, or you know, that they try to support a theory that isn't really there. TV advertising is a powerful channel for business growth, and it's a counterintuitive solution for businesses frustrated by the rising costs of digital marketing. But The traditional process for launching TV campaigns is expensive, time-consuming, and complex. That's why marketing architects flip the traditional process on its head. With all-inclusive TV advertising, they invest their own money to produce, analyze, and optimize your TV campaign. All you pay for is media, setting you up for rapid growth at a significant cost advantage. This approach to TV is so revolutionary, they wrote a book about it. It's called all-inclusive TV, how booming brands are reimagining TV advertising. It explores how a variety of brands are using TV to transform their businesses and how you can do the same. For a free copy of the book, visit this episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com or visit marketingarchitects.com slash book and tell them you heard about it on the Marketing Book Podcast. You know, there aren't many chapters in the book. I just wanted to jump into a few things. I know this will be frustrating for you because (laughs) you've written such a complete book, but just to give the listener a sense of some of the things that that you cover in the book. Let's go to the chapter on decision science. And this may be familiar to some folks, but explain what you mean when you write on page 13, there are two decision-making systems at work in any decision we make an implicit system working like an autopilot and an explicit system operating like a pilot. Yeah, well, this is thanks to uh, notably the uh, Nobel laureate winning work of Professor Daniel Kahneman, who's a a, a psychologist, uh, and others before him who started to describe a dual system of mental processing, which to date, is still the best 
understanding that we have of how the brain operates. So what Kahneman calls these two systems, very simply, system one and system two. And system one, uh, which for which we use the metaphor of an autopilot. Which I found a little bit more helpful. Yeah, <laughs> I think so. I think so. It's, it's this idea that the autopilot does an incredibly complex task without any fuss. It just gets on and, and does it automatically. And the pilot system, which is the other system or, or system two, is always there, of course, and can override the autopilot if necessary. So when something new needs to be learned or something unexpected happens, the pilot can engage. But generally, the pilot is very happy to let the autopilot get on and do its job because otherwise it would be very tiring for the pilot to, um, as they did in the past, fly the plane entirely by him or herself. Mm -hmm. But now the autopilot can take off and navigate to a destination and and land and and it all just happens. So the characteristics of this autopilot system is are, are that it it works automatically it works very very quickly with with virtually unlimited um, capacity and it's it's about intuition and spontaneity and it's really what we experience as gut feel so based on our experiences and, and the intuition we build over time we can feel the this system one uh, at work it it never sleeps it's on 24/7 it's the system that operates when we have a seemingly intractable problem either at work or in our personal lives and you've heard the expression sleep on it because when you do your system one continues working and in the morning in the shower or, or when you're shaving or or out for a jog or whatever suddenly the answer pops into your head and seemingly by magic, but it's because your system one has been processing information and data whilst you've been asleep at a at a, a pre-conscious level. So this this just happens kind of under under the um under the radar if you like. Mm-hmm. The the pilot system in contrast is very slow, it's very effortful and um it uses a lot of burns a lot of the body's available energy when it is in use because it has very limited bandwidth and, and small processing capacity. And and that's why whenever and wherever we can, we default to the autopilot for decision-making because it's geared for action. It it has evolved over millennia to, to help us survive and keep us alive on, on the planet because – the pilot system, with its its limited bandwidth, is roughly forty to fifty bits of information processing per second, compared to about eleven million bits with the autopilot. If you're processing stuff at forty to fifty bits, that's not enough to get you out of the house in the morning. You really cannot exist as human beings. We couldn't exist just by processing all of that information because we're constantly bombarded by stimuli, and that's why the system one autopilot has. Uh, has evolved to be nature's uh, most energy-efficient operating system. So how do the two interact when we're buying? Yeah. So um, as human beings, we like to think we are in control of all of our decisions and choices. Yes, which makes me laugh uh, as we 
discussed before we were recording. I, years ago, I worked in advertising in New York, and at one point on the Unilever account, and I can remember sitting on the other side of the the two way mirror <laughs> with yeah. a focus group of people talking about whatever product it was, and I can always remember hearing people say, "Well, I'm not influenced by advertising." Mm-hmm. <laughs> or or whatever it was. And that's that's what you're talking about there. Yeah, because when we consume advertising, assuming we pay attention to it and it and it gets encoded to memory, it starts to build and add to memory structures that are effectively what brands are. You know, right. brands are a bundle of perceptions in the in the brain. Um So I actually I interrupted. So you were saying that people like to think that they're in control yeah. when really that's a, a small part of one percent of the mental. Yeah, exactly. And it's it it the the pilot plays a very important role in rationalising purchase decisions um, in order to make us believe we are making good <laughs> right. decisions. Yes, but generally, um, when when we are shopping, whether it's online or offline, there are a number of conditions which mitigate against pilot system processing simply because it's too too much stuff going on. So for example, when we're faced with complexity of choice, you know, you go into a supermarket and there are 30,000 SKUs on offer or we go online and we're looking at price comparison website and yeah, 100 results come back. So faced with complexity of choice, we cannot process everything at 40 to 50 bits per second. So the pilot will default to system one or the autopilot. Or if we've got habitual purchases, so something that doesn't require a lot of cognitive uh, involvement or reflective mental processing, if it's stuff we buy week in, week out or month in, month out, then it becomes more of an automatic decision. Um, Conversely, if we are highly involved in the purchase, you know, maybe it's a craft beer or something and we we want to pick up the bottle and turn the label around and read about the founder's story, then the pilot will play a a greater role in that, uh, that decision. Also, involvement has to do with personal risk and financial risk as well. So again, if it's just a few dollars or euros or pounds, then we don't need to expend a lot of reflective mental processing on that purchase. And the third condition is overload, task overload. So when we're when we're shopping uh, and browsing online or offline, you know, if a message comes through on our phone or we've got a kid tuggy at our at our sleeve or whatever, we have to drop one task to attend to another. We cannot simply stack the tasks. So again, the pilot will default to autopilot. And then the fourth condition is time pressure, which is a feature of all of our lives. You know, again, whether we're, we're online or offline, it doesn't matter. So any one of those four conditions, complexity of choice, low involvement, task overload, and time pressure, you only need one of those to be present for the purchase decision to be dominated by the autopilot. And in many categories there's more than one of those conditions present. So it's it, it's impossible to put a, an accurate percentage on the number of decisions that are system one or autopilot. Uh, you might, some people say, oh, I've heard it's 95%. I mean, no scientist would actually put a number on because it's impossible to measure. What the scientists will say is it's the vast majority of decision-making is driven by this system one autopilot set of 
automatic mental processes mm-hmm. rather than the controlled mental processes. Yeah. Well, before we move on to the next chapter, can you explain what framing is and how that helps us understand how decisions are made? Yeah, framing is um, an extraordinary phenomenon, has to do with uh, how we perceive things. And it it relates to um, information, the way information is is depicted or shown to us uh, and certainly the impact that brands have on products or, or services. So to give you an example from, from a study um, where a pound of ground meat was shown to people with, a, with one label which said 90% fat free and then exactly the same ground meat was shown to another sample of people with the label 10% fat so objectively, rationally, they're identical, okay? But they have different frames uh, because of the way they're labelled. And when the meat is labelled as 90% fat-free, the vast majority of people believe perceive it as better quality, as healthier, and they are willing to pay more for that meat than when it's labelled 10% fat, simply because of the way the information is framed. And the same applies to brands. So you, you can have um, a cup of coffee that when you taste blind, you don't know what it is, you could say, yeah, or two cups of coffee, you could say, yeah, they're, they're fine, they're good cups of coffee. But if I were to tell you one was from Starbucks and the other was from your local deli, then it changes your perception of uh, and your subjective experience of that product. The famous case here is Pepsi versus Coke. When people taste them blind a slight majority prefer Pepsi-Cola. But when they are told this is Pepsi and this is Coke, then the vast majority of people say, I prefer Coke. Even when they are given Pepsi-Cola in the glass and told it's Coke, they will then say, yes, I prefer that Coca-Cola, even though they've just drunk Pepsi. They're not lying. They're not being mischievous at all. It is just this framing effect has created, it's almost like it. the brand radiates um, an effect onto the product and imbues the product with with different qualities. We we had um, an example ourselves where we were working with a client who was testing a face cream, and they were they sent this out to different cities in in Germany um, in a plain jar, and we got the research results back from these different cities. And one one city stood out where the results were very significantly different to the other cities and we we couldn't understand this and we checked back with the client and they said oh yeah we well we ran out of that jar shape so we substituted a different jar shape it was still unbranded it was still plain but it was a different shape (laughs) and it was simply the fact that it was in a different shape it it framed the product within it yeah differently and people's experience therefore was different so framing is an incredibly powerful um concept in in marketing it's what you know when we talk about this intangible quality that that brands have framing explains explains a lot of that well let's jump to chapter two there's just so many delicious morsels here let's talk about how language can increase the perceived value of a product or service. I don't know that people appreciate just how powerful the language element can be. 
Yeah, um, the example I give is is one where the way food is described in in a restaurant or on on packaging, um, and you, we we've all experienced this, you know. Yes, you and you have, know, let me add, I, there was a lot of head slapping because you would explain that in the book, and I'm like, yeah, I'm guilty, boy. Yeah, <laughs> there's a big fish hook in my mouth. Yeah, this has pulled me right in before. Yeah. The example I give is is when uh, different adjectives are used to describe things. So, yeah, instead of just saying something is um, pulled pork or shredded pork, if you say it's hand-pulled pork, then somehow it gives it a different feeling, a different quality, and ultimately we're prepared to pay more for it, yeah. which seems bizarre because the product's no different. Um, but just adding those few adjectives to describe things can can change people's perception of a product. Rory gives this example himself with um, uh, years, years ago when uh, people were trying to sell something called the Patagonian toothfish and um, it wasn't selling very well. And somebody... I can't remember who had a bright idea to rename it as Chilean sea bass. Oh yes. And sales went bananas. It was just you know calling it Chilean sea bass is so much more appetizing and attractive than Patagonian toothfish. Yes. Well, it was, a, it was a lot of great science in the chapter about, you know, affirming that where somebody might think, "Oh, that people that that, that doesn't affect people." Oh, it does. It does. Yeah. Actually, there's another a big concept um like you to talk about explain what anchoring is and 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 the vital role it plays in perceiving value yeah anchoring is is also a very important concept because when yeah you know, we don't have a supercomputer in our heads that that uh, remembers every price of every item in every channel and every store so we we can't judge prices in isolation when we're shopping we always judge things relative to something else. So our, our perception is always relative. You know, if I said to you, here's a circle, is it big or small? Well, <laughs> you can't answer because you've got nothing against which to judge it relatively. Uh -huh. So what anchoring does is, is establish uh, a price, an anchor price, and, and then we can use that to affect the perception of what follows. Uh, and to give you an example of that, uh, when we were working with Deutsche Telekom in, in Europe uh, and in Germany, they're, they're a quad play player. So they've got TV and broadband and fixed line and, and mobile as well. And they had bundles of these services and they said, we've got bundles A, B and C in ascending order of price. Um, we're selling a lot of bundles a, B, a and B, but very few of bundle C and we want people to trade up. Uh, because we make more margin on bundle C. So what would you recommend? And we said, what you need to do is to introduce a new bundle, D, which is even more expensive, but then reverse the order in which they appear in your, in your ads and online. So the first thing that people perceive is bundle D, the most expensive one. Now, because that's the first thing that people perceive, that becomes the anchor. And then when we look at bundle C, suddenly, rather than being seen as the most expensive, it now looks like great value compared to bundle D. Mm -hmm. And we just use bundle D almost like a decoy, if, if, if you like. 
And they did, they tried this and lo and behold, they started selling lots more of Bundle C, which was the commercial objective <laughs> in the first place. So we used anchoring as a, as a principle there. Yeah. And I can't remember if it was in your book, but it brings to mind the example, I think it was in Dan Ariely's book about the economist mm. uh, subscriptions, where they, they did a, a very similar thing and it boosted the, what, what they wanted people to be buying. Uh, let's go to chapter three, decoding the interface. And I realize the question I'm about to ask might appear to be on a level with what is the meaning of life or you know, <laughs> what do women want? But explain <laughs> how perception works and how a true understanding of it can help optimize our marketing activities. Wow. I mean, this is a huge topic. Um, I got to go on an errand. I'll be back in about 45 minutes. Let's see how you're doing. <laughs> Yeah, it'll take longer than that. No, no, no. Um, yeah, I mean, per- percep- one of the first things that the guys from Decode said to me was perception beats cognition every time, and and I didn't I didn't quite understand what they what they meant by that, um, but what they meant by that is that the way we perceive things influences everything else that follows. Mm-hmm. Um, and Kahneman himself has a, an interesting expression here that he uses, which is, what you see is all there is. And and he uses that to mean that the autopilot system one is, it deals with perception, but it's, it's perception is bound by the stimuli that are in front of us. So, we, sorry, system one itself doesn't imagine it just deals with what's tangible, what's perceptible there. So perception itself is a very, very important thing. And perception is subject to very many vagaries. So for example, um, there was a lovely study where people were given two different kinds of dessert. And one was uh, coloured uh, slightly just off white, a sort of creamy colour. And the other was um, was brown. And they were asked to report to taste them and report what they were. And they reported the creamy colour one as, as being vanilla and they reported the brown coloured dessert as being chocolate. And actually, they were both vanilla, but one of them had been coloured brown with food colouring. But because they perceived it as brown and all of the associations of that colour brown with the dessert meant chocolate, when they tasted it, it was chocolate. And that... You know, even though objectively, cognitively, it wasn't, but their perception beat cognition. Perception beats cognition. Yes, <laughs> that's great. Yeah, that's great. Uh, yeah, it's very, very powerful, very powerful concept. Yeah, there, there's another concept in that chapter that I'd like to talk about, which I think is really, really important. Uh, probably very misunderstood in the marketing world. Let's talk about how merely getting attention does not make people want to buy. And it reminds me of the expression I've heard over the years where some company would say, we just need to get the word out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but but that's, I think a lot of people think if they can just get attention, that's most of the battle. But you, you skewer that. Yeah, well, attention is important. It's the gateway to the brain. Uh, without it, nothing else gets processed. So we have to get into the brain in the first place. But in and of itself, that's that's necessary, but it's not sufficient because as soon as you've got attention, what happens is that the brain decodes the incoming uh, stimuli or information um, 
in, in two ways. Firstly, recognition. So it's searching all of its associative memory banks, which is system one operating operating system. So everything we've learned over through our lives, really, it searches to recognize what the incoming stimulus is. And once it's recognized it, it seeks to ascribe a meaning to that. So it's like the brain is metaphorically saying, what is it and what does it represent based on what I've learned in the past? And this is a, a an automatic system one process because um, we've got to stay alive on the planet and we need to we need to understand what we're perceiving all the time. So, you know, that thing over there ru- rushing to mo- towards me very quickly decode that as a as a tiger uh, and I know it's dangerous so I act and that's you know that happens in in milliseconds but jumping out of the way or or escaping from the tiger um, is is necessary once we've you know once we've got the attention and that started to be uh, decoded but when it comes to to brands we can recognize stuff we can know what it means but it still doesn't mean that it's motivating to us at all. So there's a third step in the brain after attention and this sort of intuitive understanding. Then comes motivation, which is where the brain is metaphorically asking the question, what's in it for me? Do I approach this? Do I do I avoid it? And unless it's motivating to us, we we won't act. So you can get attention, but not motivation. But you can't get motivation without attention. So there is kind of a, you know, there's a sequence, a bit of a hierarchy there. Right. You have to open the door, but then you also have to walk in. Absolutely. So I'd like to uh, jump to chapter four and quote uh, from the very beginning. You write, the commonly held view in marketing is that in order to change behavior, it is first necessary to change attitudes. Where does uh, Phil Barden stand on that? Well, I used to believe that. I grew up I grew up in the in the marketing university that said that behavior is a function of the attitude you hold and to change behavior you need to have some sort of intervention like advertising um, that will challenge people's attitudes and modify them. And once they've changed their attitudes, they will dutifully change their behavior. But you had a conversion on the road to Damascus one day. <laughs> I did indeed. And what, what science tells us now is that the vast majority of, uh, of this is the other way around, that actually our attitudes are formed post hoc in order to conform with our behavior. Which, which makes sense, right? Because we, we, if we behave in a certain way, then we kind of need to have the attitude that explains and rationalizes why we behaved in a certain way. And there's lots of proofs of this. I mean, in, in the US and in, uh, in particular, but also many other countries where governments have, have run eat your five a day uh, portions of fruit and vegetables to, to encourage healthier eating. And in the US in the 90s, they ran a big advertising campaign, which was hugely successful. It more than quadrupled the percentage of the population who agreed that they should eat five a day. So you would naturally assume that behavior would follow. And actually what happened was was nothing. The same percentage of the population ate five a day 
as had done five years prior to the advertising campaign. And that's because Americans don't like being told what to do. Well, I'm not sure about that. But <laughs> oh, we have it, an authority problem. Yeah. <laughs> but what, um, what the chapter talks about in particular is how you can change behavior without changing minds. Yes. And using things like just the, the interface. And there's some lovely experiments with um, changing eating behavior, uh, which started out at Cornell University and now been translated and put into practice in places like Google. Um, who took those lessons and, and also applied them, where just by changing the layout of a of a lunch line or a canteen, or the way things are presented, can dramatically alter people's eating behaviour. So, for example, in a in the Cornell study, when uh, an opaque lid was put on an ice cream cabinet, mm-hmm. sales of ice cream dropped by a third simply because quite literally out of sight is out of mind or when the salad bar was moved from uh, next to the wall to just in front of the checkout and the the till register sales of salads tripled and putting um, things like broccoli as the first thing that the students encountered rather than burgers and fries or pizza grew broccoli sales by 15%. (laughs) And just by just this sort of simple changes of making things effortful to to reach or to ask for also change students' uh, behavior. Um, It's incredible. It is, yeah. And and this was the chapter titled Optimizing the Path to Purchase. And let me just uh, add to what you're saying there from page 142. You write, in marketing, we are constantly searching for possibilities to gain a competitive edge over the competition by developing new products and new product features and improving product quality. And of course, this is necessary. However, what we just identified illustrates that there is a big opportunity to gain competitive edge by improving the decision interface through changing small things at low cost. The impact can be highly disproportionate to the investment required. And what was interesting to me is in there, you have a, I had never seen one of these, but there's a sign that shows, you know, when you're driving and it'll tell you how fast you're going, mm. which always makes me slow down because I, I want the approval of that sign. You know, I, w- I want to show that I'm yeah. a, I'm a good driver. And, uh, but on this particular, on these particular signs, if you're at the speed limit or below, it has a green smiley face. <laughs> And if you're yeah. going too fast, there's a angry red, uh, uh, you know, frowning face that says "slow down." Yes, <laughs> I can yes. only imagine how effective that must be. Yeah, I mean, compared to what happened before, which is, I mean, the, the objective is road safety, right? The objective is to get drivers to drive within a certain speed limit. Mm-hmm. And what happened prior to this sort of thing? Was that you'd be if you were speeding, you you perceived a, f- a flash of light in your rearview mirror, and then a couple of weeks later, uh, a, a brown envelope dropped through your door, and there was a fine in there with a photograph of your registration plate, um, which was nasty and painful. Mm-hmm. But it, what it didn't do was get you to change your behaviour in that moment. But that's it's- not as bad as when I'm caught speeding and a car chase ensues. <laughs> yeah, I know. I've heard all about those. They even reached the BBC News. Yeah, <laughs> but with the with the smiley face and the frowny face, what it does is change your behaviour in that moment. Yes, and that that achieves the objective, right? Just like you the know, broccoli at the beginning of the line. Exactly. Exactly right. Yeah. yeah. 
Interesting. Well, uh, chapter five on goals, uh, don't tell the rest of the chapters this, but that was my favorite chapter. Uh, (laughs) I want to quote from the very beginning here where Phil Barden writes, if there was one thing from decision science that I wish I had known about during my brand marketing career, it's knowing what motivates people to fully understand purchase behavior. We need to understand what motivates people to buy products and brands in the first place. So, Phil Barden, why do we buy what we buy? And again, I'll be back in 45 minutes. <laughs> yeah, it'll take a lot longer. Yeah, it's it, it's my favorite chapter too, and, and I genuinely um, mean what I said there, that if I'd, if I'd known about that earlier in my career, um, I'd have been a lot happier, I think. So, this comes back to basic neuropsychological theory that um, we have two kind of states of ourself. We've got our current actual self as we are, and we have an ideal self. And there may be a gap between the two. So for example, I'm thirsty. So my current state, my actual self is I'm thirsty. My ideal state is I'm not thirsty. And so there's a gap between the two that we experience and and we perceive. And that motivates our behavior to close the gap. You Often we use the phrase a job to be done. So in that case, my job to be done is to get a drink and, and quench my thirst. And that's a goal, right? I have a goal of thirst, of quenching my thirst. So goals exist at a, a very functional level like that, or, or being hungry or cold or, or when it comes to categories um, of products and services, you know, I may want broadband that is that is fast and reliable, or I may want transportation, or I may want, I've got dirty laundry, so uh, I need it cleaned. I need it to smell nice. I need the, the stains to, to be removed. So, now, would those so, be more explicit goals? Yeah. Yeah. Those okay. are, those are very, yes, those are explicit in the, in the sense that we can ask people about them mm-hmm. and they, and people can tell, tell us why, you know, why do you buy detergent? Well, it's obvious, right? But, but also they they are fundamentally important to a business because if your brand doesn't deliver at that level then you won't be in business for very long however in many categories particularly mature categories there's very little functional difference between products or services they all do a good job then there may well be differences but you know are they are they noticeable differences or are they all doing a, a decent job. Uh, they they and, get the job done, basically. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So how then do we choose? And this is where there's another level of goals which are more implicit. This is a, a group of goals that we would characterize as being social, emotional, or psychological that have to do with our sense of self-identity or s- social or emotional outcomes that we want to achieve by using a, a particular category. Um and and to give you an example, so with the detergent, going back to detergent, we we may have uh, an ingredient or, or a chemical in the detergent that is called an optical brightener. So this this makes white look whiter to the to the eye, and that whiter than white, whiter than white. <laughs> I exactly. think that was one of the expressions. Yeah, <laughs> I think it was. It, that's linked with a functional goal of delivering perfectly clean laundry. That's great. Okay, but then. All of the competitors in the, in the category do that job, but then that can also link 
to a social-emotional goal, which may be a sense of pride or self-esteem or control or power, or it may be a sense of caring for for yourself or caring for others and, and protection and nurturing. So this is where brands get their real points of differentiation from. Um, so in the detergent category, you may have one that one brand that talks about functionality and economy. So you can you can save money by turning the temperature down on your washing machine and w- without compromising on the quality of uh, the laundry care. And there'll be another one that talks about well, you know, we get all the stains out, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, but you know, this gives you a sense of satisfaction as a parent or caregiver. So very different social, emotional or psychological goals or jobs to be done. And the thing about these is uh, the beauty of the the implicit goals is they are universal um, and they're complete in the sense that there are no new goals um, to be discovered. They have all been identified. They've all been studied and documented. And so we can use these in our day-to-day work to help us position our brands. Uh, And because they're universal, they work across category, they work across geography, and they work across demography as well. Uh, And there are enough of them to enable us to have quite a granular understanding of brands within a category. And, And the goals concept and being able to test and measure these goals was the foundation of the T-Mobile relaunch when I was Decode's client. And that's why I know it's so. It's not just theory, but it's very eminently practical in its application and also incredibly powerful because what it enabled us to do was to say, right, here's the mobile category. These are the motivators and the goals that we need to address to be a relevant player in the category, but also... We need to do something to differentiate T-Mobile from its competitors. And the goal approach enabled us to do that and to craft a proposition, which you then turned into an advertising idea and uh, and brief, which led to the the flash mob ad. And I mean, that was back in... 2009? Yeah, well, the ad was 2009, but the, the work was done 2007, 2008. Okay. And... It has been consistently applied ever since throughout um, T-Mobile and, and its parent Deutsche Telekom. And, and the, the benefits of that consistency in terms of communications, in terms of look and feel of the brands across uh, 12 European countries, for example, uh, in terms of um, innovation and product development and how they're brought to market is behind what the, the former CMO of, of Deutsche Telekom, he's happy to attest to this being the foundation for the enormous growth in brand value. And they, they've gone from being about fourth fourth in Europe to being the second biggest in the world uh, in terms of brand valuation. Mm-hmm. It's uh, it's an enormous success story. And it's, it's one that is all founded on goals. Yes, you know, this struck me... Uh, yeah, you know, there's the explicit goals, there's the implicit goals. The implicit goals just seems like the holy grail of what you're talking about in the book. I don't know, you, you didn't use, he didn't use that term, people, but <laughs> <laughs> at a high level, you all on page 203, you have this decode goal map, which yeah. captures the implicit goals relevant for marketing. And let me just say what they are, because 
but this is really high level because you can really get detailed within each one of these uh, six uh, segments. It's excitement, adventure, autonomy, discipline, security, and enjoyment. And then throughout the book, you go examples of where different brands uh, fell or on there or where they were and where they moved and why that was a mistake. But let me just quote from page, a couple things from 195. You, you write that, when it comes to goals and goal value, there are two levels, explicit goals that are category-specific, like removing stains, you know, moisturizing our skin, reliability of a car, and implicit goals that are more general and that operate on a psychological level, like energizing, being sensible, fun, or status. In marketing, we tend to focus a lot on the category-specific explicit goals. And then you go on to write that There's little difference between competitors at the explicit level, particularly in mature markets. In order to deliver the highest possible goal value and to provide relevant differentiation, we have to address the relevant implicit goals with our brands, products, and communication. And then you quote Stephen Brown, professor at the Kellogg School of Management, who said, Just following consumer wishes leads to replaceable products, copycat advertising, and stagnating markets. And then you write, implicit goals run deeper than explicit consumer wishes and therefore can help to differentiate in a meaningful, relevant way. So it just, that seemed uh, to make it much clearer to me and, and was was very helpful. And it just seems like there's such an over-reliance on explicit goals. And that's kind of where a lot of companies stop. Yeah, because because a lot of companies come from a supply-led mentality and trying to craft and create product or service excellence, which does tend to be um, quite functional and and measurable. Coming back to what we said right at the top of this about you know the the CFO liking stuff that he or she can measure. and and a real focus on that and that that's not wrong because you know having having a quality service or product that delivers is is of course fundamental to your business but that's the starting line not the finish line that's right it's not sufficient well let me ask you a few questions from um, chapter 6 from positioning to touch points and this is one that i think will surprise people I'd like you to expand on this, if you would. Page 217, you write, we've all used and heard the objective that we need to, uh, quote, to connect emotionally with consumers, that we need to bond with them, and that we need to, quote, emotionalize our brands and products. The term emotion is a very important concept in marketing, so let's take a closer look at it. It's actually one of the biggest obstacles to efficient marketing especially when implementing strategies across touch points. Talk about that. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of misunderstanding about what emotion is or emotions And I think, is that the part where you talked about the Budweiser Super Bowl ad where they showed puppies? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So so people... Very emotional, but apparently it did not move any more beer. It, exactly right. Exactly right. And there's there's two issues with this. One, one is one of understanding. Um, because emotions from a scientific point of view uh, are very simple. They are a um, neurophysiological response to a stimulus or, or an expectation of a stimulus in the environment. And they, they prepare our bodies 
for for something and there are only two two components of an emotion there's there's valence which is positive or negative and there's arousal which is high or low and what uh, people so firstly i think there's there's a lack of understanding of that's what an emotion is but also people conflate that with feelings so feelings are combinations of valence and arousal but the the real um issue i've found is that when people start to write in a for example an advertising brief we want people to feel we want this ad to make people cry or to go ah or to pull at their heartstrings yeah or feel happy feel good great okay fine but you know what there are millions and millions of ways that you could craft an ad to make people feel good or to pull at their heartstrings and and which is right for your brand. And the example I give in, in the book is, is Cadbury's um, Gorilla and its successor trucks. They were both written to a brief of rediscover the joy. Now, joy is one of those um, feelings that we talk about as, as an emotion. But joy itself can look and feel very different in an ad depending on what's triggered that response so for example the joy of discovering something which in our goal map would be about excitement and adventure if you were to make that into an ad that would look and feel very different to the joy of parenthood and that would look and feel very different to the joy of sitting down with a cup of coffee and a good book and that would, in turn, would look and feel very different to the joy you experience when you watch your your team play well and win. Okay, now, they are all joy, but that's the problem. Because what are you going to do in your ad? You've got many different ways to evoke that joy. But w- what goal underlies it? And this is wh- where we c- need to come back to the science. Because what... Um, the, the most powerful way of understanding this that we found is that emotion plays a role as a feedback loop in our in ourselves to tell us the extent to which we are achieving a goal or not. So to bring that to life, if I'm playing tennis competitively and I'm losing, I feel frustrated. I feel angry. I might feel sad, right? That's an, that's an emotional response that tells me that I'm not meeting my goal. If, on the other hand, I'm winning, then I feel good. I feel happy. So again, the emotional response comes back to gauge the extent to which I'm meeting my goal. But the goal is what is important. Mm-hmm. That's what evokes the, the emotional response. So that, that's one aspect. I think the, the other aspect that people often get confused about, because we hear emotional advertising is, is the best you can do. And you've already mentioned Budweiser puppies. You know, that that was off the charts emotional. It it broke the internet when it went out in the Super Bowl. It was the most retweeted um, beverage ad ever. It had the most likes of any Facebook post ever from a from a beverage. I think it was number one on the USA Today ad meter. That's exactly right. Yeah. And then nine months later, the VP of the brand said, well, everybody loved the puppies. We won't air those ads again because they don't sell beer, <laughs> you know, which is a bit contradictory to what we've heard that emotional ads are the most effective. And the point with that is, yes, it, they were incredibly emotional, but emotion is just a response to the ad. Mm-hmm. 
There was nothing in the ad that was motivating. Yes. You know, let me just quote from page 227, where you write, when you have emotion without any goals to drive motivation, your marketing and advertising will more than likely fall flat and fail to deliver the desired results. Right. Very interesting. Before we wrap up, can you talk a bit about the uh, what you have in the book about COVID, what you learned uh, through COVID uh, that was not in the first edition, obviously? Yeah. So this echoes the point I was making earlier about motivation being based on this perceived gap between our actual or current state or actual self and our ideal self. And during COVID, we had the phenomenon of lockdown, where we had physical restraints and constraints put on our behavior. So we did some research during COVID, which was not about what, you know, how people were feeling at the time. It was about people's unmet needs. So what was this gap between the actual and the ideal self? And we found some really interesting things that that differed by age group, which you would expect. So, for example, when you lock young adults down or teenagers and young adults down, what you do is remove their ability for autonomy and individuality and doing their own thing. Now, that is a very relevant and motivating goal set at that age, for that age group. Because when we are teenagers and young adults, we are driven to leave our tribe. We are driven to go out and experiment and test the world, test the boundaries, which is a really important part of learning and equipping ourselves to be competent adults. So suddenly not being able to do that led to this enormous gap between the actual and the ideal self and this unmet need of doing doing my own thing and autonomy. So what we then said was, well, what brands can do to help bridge that gap is to provide opportunities for people to do their own thing, but within lockdown. So for example, it's a perfect opportunity for young people to experiment with fashion or different hairstyles or colours or different makeup regimes. Um, and also that you know, the fact that they are not on display, so they're not going to risk any um, uh, possible embarrassment, um, unless of course they want to share stuff, you know, on, on online with with friends. But they can they could experiment in the safety of their own homes, if you like, mm-hmm. was a way to satisfy that unmet need during COVID. Conversely, we found that older people, their unmet needs were really all about what we call a prevention mindset. So this is about loss aversion. And in particular, the unmet needs were about protection and reassurance and caring for myself and caring for others. So the way to turn that into marketing opportunities was things like home cooking, cooking from scratch, recipe experimentation. So you know you can you can protect and nurture and care for yourself and care for others by doing that sort of sort of thing whilst being you know physically locked locked down and physically constrained. So that was some we, we thought was some really interesting use of uh, of the idea of goals and also research during during COVID just to see what had changed um, during that time. 
Interesting. Yeah. And I th- I seem to recall earlier in the book you taught you you explain those two different motivations, conserving versus uh growing and uh pursuing something, fighting something. Yes, that's right. It's it they are different mindsets. So one is one is prevention, which is about loss aversion and risk aversion and not not taking risks and keeping mm-hmm. hold of what you have. And the opposite of that is a promotion mindset, That's right. which is about taking risks and going out and facing the world and tackling challenges in order to meet your goals. Right. So yeah, they're very, very different mindsets. Yeah. Well, Phil, if readers took only one thing away from the book, what would you hope it would be? Definitely goals. Definitely understanding goals as a concept and using them to systematically understand why and how your brand works or doesn't versus its competitors and what you could do differently in order to position yourself more strongly and competitively. That would definitely be my recommendation. Mm, Well said. You know, I don't mean to be rude, but let me mention another book (laughs) because we're here to talk about your book. But there was another book that was on the show quite recently uh, called The Secret Lives of Customers. Uh, a detective story about solving the mystery of customer behavior by David Duncan. And he uh, was, was a colleague of Clayton Christensen, and it's a mystery. The book is a okay. mystery, and it's all about jobs to be done. And you might really enjoy it. And he, unlike you, he has a PhD, but it's in physics. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, but it was a very interesting book, and I'll include a link to it at this episode's website page. But yes, the jobs, well, I feel better now that I've, I've shared with you that Chapter 5 was my, my favorite chapter. So, mm-hmm. well, what's, what's one thing a listener could do today uh, when they finish listening to this to put in action one of the many ideas from your book that we've talked about? Well, actually, it's something we haven't talked about, but I think it's a very quick and easy thing to do. And, and that is the fact that the vast majority of our field of vision is peripheral, 120 degrees, out of our oh, 120 yeah. degrees. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And peripheral vision is not 2020 full color. In fact, as you move from your point of focus to the periphery, our vision deteriorates and becomes uh, blurred and it loses color saturation. Now, recognizing that and replicating it when you are designing packaging, point of sale materials, websites, and anything on a mobile um, device as well. What, what you need to understand is that when someone is pushing a trolley or a cart down an aisle, the stuff to the left and the right of them will be blurred. People cannot read text under those conditions. They can perceive colors and they can perceive shapes. They can perceive things like human faces, but text forget about it. Mm-hmm. And the same even when we're online, we have a center we have a, a center bias when we're looking at screens. So stuff on the left or the right is going to be blurred. So you can the, the quick tip and it's free is to replicate that in something like PowerPoint in the drawing tools, you can blur your image and just take a print of that or a copy of it, show it to someone in your business, so not in your business, so show it to someone who is not familiar with what you're trying to do because they will be aware and they will be sensitized to, to the brand and, and perhaps a, the message or the promotion or, or whatever it might be. Show it to friends, show it to family very quickly, you know, just for a couple of seconds and say, what is it? What did you see? What could you perceive? Mm-hmm. And that is a quick and dirty test to replicate the real conditions of purchase. 
If you pass those conditions, you can be sure it's going to work in the real world. If you fail, then you might want to relook at your design. Oh, great. And that's uh, chapter three, where and you've got a lot of visuals of everything you just talked about. Yeah. Very interesting. Yes, yes. And actually, earlier in our conversation, you talked about you know, advertising if somebody's even paying attention to it, which is <laughs> very true. It's a very low involvement thing where people just aren't mm. paying attention to it like, uh, like the advertisers think they are. Having been an ad guy, <laughs> we thought everyone was paying a lot of attention to the ads. Yeah. So – Phil, looking back, what books have most inspired your working career? I have a feeling Thinking Fast and Slow might be one of them, but what else? Yes, it is. Um, well, the the first books that um, the guys from Decode recommended to me were Predictably Irrational mm-hmm. uh, by Dan Ariely, um, How We Decide by Jonah Lehrer. Those were the first two that I, that I read and started to get more interested. Those are, I think, what people call popular psychology now. Um, but then I read some some others that were, were deeper, um, such as Stranger to Ourselves by Timothy Wilson. Um, and there's one, I can't remember the title, by Chris Frith, who is a, a neuroscientist, uh, F-R-I-T-H. Those, those take you onto a, a deeper level. And they're still accessible, so you don't need to only work in academia to understand them by any means. But those uh, those are good. I think more recently, um, the one that I've enjoyed is The Choice Factory by Richard Shotton. So mm-hmm. Richard, similar to myself, he had a background in advertising and media and has moved into decision science. Uh, he writes very, very well. It's easy to read. And what he did in the Choice Factory was to take about 25 biases and show what the studies were, explain the theory. But then the twist that Richard brought was to conduct his own trials and experiments relating the bias to advertising and show the results. So that's that's an, an, I like it because, again, it's very practical. It, it takes the theory and then says, now what do I do? Mm-hmm. So that's uh, certainly one I'd recommend. And when I interviewed Sam Tatum, who's a friend of uh, Richard's, he said Richard's working on another book. Yes, he is. Yes, he's got. I think it's available for pre-order now. In fact, I've I've had the honour of uh, of reading it and giving him an endorsement for it. Uh, it's called The Illusion of Choice. Um, so it's kind of more of the same. He's taken um, a, a number of biases and and also. Uh, different ones, of course, and, uh, and run experiments and trials with them again. Oh, I see it here. I think when uh, I interviewed Sam, they didn't know the title yet, but it says, I'm looking it up here on Amazon, The Illusion of Choice, 16 and a half psychological biases that influence what we buy. And it looks like it's coming out, at least here in the United States, in uh, March of 2023. Yeah, that's right. So at marketingbookpodcast.com, we're going to include links to everything linkable, including all the books that have been mentioned to uh, your your agency site, to your book site, to your LinkedIn profile and his Twitter account. And now a word to your dear listener. I want to ask you a big favor. Please reach out in some way to Phil and congratulate him on the second edition of this book and thank him for being a guest on the Marketing Book Podcast. Send him a message on LinkedIn, Twitter, uh, or his website. Guests on the show have told me how much they really enjoy hearing from Marketing Book Podcast listeners and not just because Marketing Book Podcast listeners are so 
ridiculously good looking. And if you are listening on your smartphone and you subscribe to the Marketing Book Podcast and your favorite podcast app like Spotify or Apple Podcasts, all these links can be found by going to this episode right now and clicking on this episode's website link. Final quote, page 270. This book started with a major challenge to marketers, a study showing that CEOs do not think highly of marketing, in large part because of its intangibility, referring to it as la-la land. This book has shown that there is an alternative, a tangible, objective, science-based approach to marketing that offers a way out of la-la land and into a position of greater understanding and respect in the boardroom. The book has decoded the science behind why we buy. The author is Phil Barden. Phil, thank you very much for joining us on the Marketing Book Podcast. Doug, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me here. And that closes the book on another episode of the Marketing Book Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it and found it helpful. Special thanks to this episode's sponsor, Marketing Architects, creators of the all-inclusive TV advertising concept that's so revolutionary, they wrote a book about it. For a free copy of the book, All-Inclusive TV, How Booming Brands Are Reimagining TV Advertising, visit this episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com or visit marketingarchitects.com slash book and tell them you heard about it on the Marketing Book Podcast. And if you're one of the legions of listeners who have left an iTunes review, please let me return your kind favor by mailing you some Marketing Book Podcast stuff. Just send me your mailing address anywhere in the world, and I'll drop it in the mail. And remember the words of the late, great Jim Rohn, who said, Formal education will make you a living. Self-education will make you a fortune. 